Chapter Three of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How the Brigadier Held the King. Here, upon the lapel of my coat, you may see the ribbon of my decoration, but the medal itself I keep in a leathern pouch at home, and I never venture to take it out, unless one of the modern peace generals or some foreigner of distinction who finds himself in our little town, takes advantage of the opportunity to pay his respects to the well-known Brigadier Gerard. Then I place it upon my breast, and I give my moustache the old Marengo twist, which brings a grey point into either eye. Yet with it all I fear that neither they, nor you either, my friends, will ever realise the man that I was. You know me only as a civilian, with an air and a manner it is true, but still merely as a civilian. Had you seen me as I stood in the doorway of the inn at Alamo on the 1st of July in the year 1810, you would then have known what the hussar may attain to. For a month I had lingered in that accursed village, and all on account of a lance-thrust in my ankle, which made it impossible for me to put my foot to the ground. There were three besides myself at first, old Bouvet of the Hussars of Berchenet, Jacques Renier of the Cuirassiers, and a funny little Voldiger captain whose name I forget. But they all got well and hurried on to the front, while I sat gnawing my fingers and tearing my hair, and even, I must confess, weeping from time to time as I thought of my Hussars of Conflans and the deplorable condition in which they must find themselves when deprived of their colonel. I was not a chief of brigade yet, you understand, although I already carried myself like one, but I was the youngest colonel in the whole service, and my regiment was wife and children to me. It went to my heart that they should be so bereaved. It is true that Villaret, the senior major, was an excellent soldier, but still, even among the best there are degrees of merit. Ah, that happy July day of which I speak, when first I limped to the door and stood in the golden Spanish sunshine. It was but the evening before that I had heard from the regiment. They were at Pastores, on the other side of the mountains, face to face with the English, not forty miles from me by road. But how was I to get to them? The same thrust which had pierced my ankle had slain my charger. I took advice both from Gomez, the landlord, and from an old priest who had slept that night in the inn, but neither of them could do more than assure me that there was not so much as a colt left upon the whole countryside. The landlord would not hear of my crossing the mountains without an escort, for he assured me that El Cuchillo, the Spanish guerrilla chief, was out that way with his band, and that it meant a death by torture to fall into his hands. The old priest observed, however, that he did not think a French hussar would be deterred by that, and if I had had any doubts, they would, of course, have been decided by his remark. But a horse, how was I to get one? I was standing in the doorway, plotting and planning, when I heard the clink of shoes, and, looking up, I saw a great bearded man, with a blue cloak frogged across in military fashion, coming towards me. He was riding a big black horse, with one white stocking on his near foreleg. Halloa, comrade, said I, as he came up to me. Halloa, said he. I am Colonel Gerard of the Hussars, said I. I have lain here wounded for a month, and I am now ready to join my regiment of Pastores. 
"'I am Monsieur Vidal, of the Commissariat,' he answered, "'and I am myself upon my way to Pastores. "'I should be glad to have your company, Colonel, "'for I hear that the mountains are far from safe.' "'Alas,' said I, "'I have no horse, but if you will sell me yours, "'I will promise that an escort of hussars shall be sent back for you.' "'He would not hear of it, "'and it was in vain that the landlord told him dreadful stories "'of the doings of El Cuchillo.' and that I pointed out the duty which he owed to the army and to the country. He would not even argue, but called loudly for a cup of wine. I craftily asked him to dismount and to drink with me, but he must have seen something in my face, for he shook his head, and then, as I approached him, with some thought of seizing him by the leg, he jerked his heels into his horse's flanks and was off in a cloud of dust. "'My faith, it was enough to make a man mad "'to see this fellow riding away so gaily "'to join his beef-barrels and his brandy-casks, "'and then to think of my five hundred beautiful hussars "'without their leader. "'I was gazing after him with bitter thoughts in my mind, "'when who should touch me on the elbow "'but the little priest whom I have mentioned. "'It is I who can help you,' he said. "'I am myself travelling south. "'I put my arms about him, and... As my ankle gave way at the same moment, we nearly rolled upon the ground together. Get me to Pastores, I cried, and you shall have a rosary of golden beads. I had taken one from the convent of Spiritu Santo, and it shows how necessary it is to take what you can when you're upon a campaign, and how the most unlikely things may become useful. I will take you, he said, in very excellent French, not because I hope for any reward, but because it is my way always to do what I can to serve my fellow man, and that is why I am so beloved wherever I go. With that he led me down the village to an old cow-house, in which we found a tumble-down sort of diligence, such as they used to run early in this century, between some of our remote villages. There were three old mules too, none of which were strong enough to carry a man, but together they might draw the coach. The sight of their gaunt ribs and spavined legs gave me more delight than the whole two hundred and twenty hunters of the Emperor, which I have seen in their stalls at Fontainebleau. In ten minutes the owner was harnessing them into the coach, with no very good will, however, for he was in mortal dread of this terrible Cuchillo. It was only by promising him riches in this world, while the priest threatened him with perdition in the next, that we at last got him safely upon the box with the reins between his fingers. Then he was in such a hurry to get off, out of fear lest we should find ourselves in the dark in the passes, that he hardly gave me time to renew my vows to the innkeeper's daughter. I cannot at this moment recall her name, but we wept together as we parted, and I can remember that she was a very beautiful woman. You will understand, my friends, that when a man like me, who has fought the men and kissed the women in fourteen separate kingdoms, gives a word of praise to the one or the other, it has a little meaning of its own. The little priest had seemed a trifle grave when we kissed good-bye, but he soon proved himself the best of companions in the diligence. All the way he amused me with tales of his little parish up in the mountains, and I, in my turn, told him stories about the camp, but my faith, I had to pick my steps, for when I said a word too much, he would fidget in his seat, and his face would show the pain that I had given him. And, of course, it is not the act of a gentleman to talk in anything but a proper manner to a religious man, 
though with all the care in the world one's words may get out of hand sometimes. He had come from the north of Spain, as he told me, and was going to see his mother in a village of Estremadura, and as he spoke about her little peasant home and her joy in seeing him, it brought my own mother so vividly to my thoughts that the tears started to my eyes. In his simplicity he showed me the little gifts which he was taking to her, and so kindly was his manner that I could readily believe him when he said he was loved wherever he went. He examined my own uniform with as much curiosity as a child, admiring the plume of my busby, and passing his fingers through the sable with which my dolman was trimmed. He drew my sword too, and then, when I told him how many men I had cut down with it, and set my finger on the notch made by the shoulder-bone of the Russian emperor's aide-de-camp, he shuddered, and placed the weapon under the leathern cushion, declaring that it made him sick to look at it. Well, we had been rolling and creaking on our way whilst this talk had been going forward, and as we reached the base of the mountains we could hear the rumbling of cannon far away upon the right. This came from Asina, who was, as I knew, besieging Ciudad Rodrigo. There was nothing I should have wished better than to have gone straight to him, for if, as some said, he had Jewish blood in his veins, he was the best Jew that I have heard of since Joshua's time. If you were in sight of his beaky nose and bold black eyes, you were not likely to miss much of what was going on. Still, a siege is always a poor sort of pick-and-shovel business, and there were better prospects with my hussars in front of the English. Every mile that passed my heart grew lighter and lighter, until I found myself shouting and singing like a young ensign fresh from San Seer, just to think of seeing all my fine horses and my gallant fellows once more. As we penetrated the mountains the road grew rougher and the pass more savage. At first we had met a few muleteers, but now that the whole country seemed deserted, which is not to be wondered at when you think that the French, the English, and the guerrillas had each in turn had command over it. So bleak and wild was it, one great brown wrinkled cliff succeeding another, and the pass growing narrower and narrower, that I ceased to look out, but sat in silence, thinking of this and that, of women whom I had loved, and of horses which I had handled. I was suddenly brought back from my dreams, however, by observing the difficulties of my companion, who was trying, with a sort of braddle which he had drawn out, to bore a hole through the leathern strap which held up his water-flask. As he worked, with twitching fingers, the strap escaped his grasp, and the wooden bottle fell at my feet. I stooped to pick it up, and as I did so, the priest silently leaped upon my shoulders and drove his braddle into my eye. My friends, I am, as you know, a man steeled to face every danger. When one has served from the affair of Zurich to the last fatal day of Waterloo, and has had the special medal, which I keep at home in a leathern pouch, one can afford to confess when one is frightened. It may console some of you, when your own nerves play you tricks, to remember that you have heard even me, Brigadier Gerard, say that I have been scared. And besides my terror at this horrible attack and the maddening pain of my wound, there was a sudden feeling of loathing, such as you might feel were some filthy tarantula to strike its fangs into you. I clutched the creature in both hands, 
and hurling him onto the floor of the coach, I stamped on him with my heavy boots. He had drawn a pistol from the front of his soutane, but I kicked it out of his hand, and again I fell with my knees upon his chest. Then, for the first time, he screamed horribly, while I, half-blinded, felt about for the sword which he had so cunningly concealed. My hand had just lighted upon it, and I was dashing the blood from my face to see where he lay that I might transfix him, when the whole coach turned partly over upon its side, and my weapon was jerked out of my grasp by the shock. Before I could recover myself, the door was burst open, and I was dragged by the heels on to the road. But even as I was torn out on to the flint stones, and realized that thirty ruffians were standing around me, I was filled with joy, for my police had been pulled over my head in the struggle, and was covering one of my eyes, and it was with my wounded eye that I was seeing this gang of brigands. You see for yourself, by this pucker and scar, how the thin blade passed between socket and ball, but it was only at that moment, when I was dragged from the coach, that I understood that my sight was not gone for ever. The creature's intention, doubtless, was to drive it through into my brain, and indeed he loosened some portion of the inner bone of my head, so that I afterwards had more trouble from that wound than from any one of the seventeen which I have received. They dragged me out, these sons of dogs, with curses and execrations, beating me with their fists and kicking me as I lay upon the ground. I had frequently observed that the mountaineers wore cloth swathed round their feet, but never did I imagine that I should have so much cause to be thankful for it. Presently, seeing the blood upon my head, and that I lay quiet, they thought that I was unconscious, whereas I was storing every ugly face among them into my memory, so that I might see them all safely hanged, if ever my chance came around. Brawny rascals they were, with yellow handkerchiefs round their heads, and great red sashes stuffed with weapons. They had rolled two rocks across the path, where it took a sharp turn, and it was these which had torn off one of the wheels of the coach and upset us. As to this reptile who had acted the priest so cleverly, and had told me so much of his parish and his mother, he, of course, had known where the ambuscade was laid, and had attempted to put me beyond all resistance at the moment when we reached it. I cannot tell you how frantic their rage was when they drew him out of the coach and saw the state to which I had reduced him. If he had not got all his deserts, he had at least something as a souvenir of his meeting with Etienne Gerard, for his legs dangled aimlessly about, and though the upper part of his body was convulsed with rage and pain, he sat straight down upon his feet when they tried to set him upright. But all the time his two little black eyes which had seemed so kindly and so innocent in the coach, were glaring at me like a wounded cat, and he spat and spat and spat in my direction. My faith, when the wretches jerked me onto my feet again, and when I was dragged off up one of the mountain paths, I understood that a time was coming when I was to need all my courage and resource. My enemy was carried upon the shoulders of two men behind me, and I could hear his hissing and his reviling, first in one ear and then in the other, as I was hurried up the winding track. I suppose that it must have been for an hour that we ascended, and what with my wounded ankle and the pain from my eye, and the fear lest this wound should have spoiled my appearance, I have made no journey to which I look back with less pleasure. I have never been a good climber at any time, 
but it is astonishing what you can do, even with a stiff ankle, when you have a copper-coloured brigand at each elbow and a nine-inch blade within touch of your whiskers. We came at last to a place where the path wound over a ridge and descended upon the other side through thick pine trees into a valley which opened to the south. In time of peace I had little doubt that the villains were all smugglers, and that these were the secret paths by which they crossed the Portuguese frontier. There were many mule tracks, and once I was surprised to see the marks of a large horse where a stream had softened the track. These were explained when, on reaching a place where there was a clearing in the firwood, I saw the animal itself halted to a fallen tree. My eyes had hardly rested upon it when I recognized the great black limbs and the white near foreleg. It was the very horse which I had begged for in the morning. What then had become of Commissariat Vidal? Was it possible that there was another Frenchman in as perilous a plight as myself? The thought had hardly entered my head when our party stopped and one of them uttered a peculiar cry. It was answered from among the brambles which lined the base of a cliff at one side of a clearing, and an instant later ten or a dozen more brigands came out from amongst them, and the two parties greeted each other. The newcomer surrounded my friend of the braddle with cries of grief and sympathy, and then turning upon me they brandished their knives and howled at me like the gang of assassins that they were. So frantic were their gestures that I was convinced that my end had come, and was just bracing myself to meet it in a manner which should be worthy of my past reputation, when one of them gave an order, and I was dragged roughly across the little glade to the brambles from which this new band had emerged. A narrow pathway led through them to a deep grotto in the side of the cliff. The sun was already setting outside, and in the cave itself it would have been quite dark but for a pair of torches which blazed from a socket on either side. Between them there was sitting at a rude table a very singular-looking person, whom I saw instantly, from the respect with which the others addressed him, could be none other than the brigand chief who had received, on account of his dreadful character, the sinister name of El Cuchillo. End of Part 1 of Chapter 3